on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a new system of tree covers protecting the cherries at one northwest orchard. Our new rain covers, which consists of around 10 hectares of plastic rain covers, which is basically a tarp. It's made out of recycled milk bottles. Um, It's a European design. And yeah, we've uh, installed it ourselves. And a new world shearing record set in Tasmania. Oh, it was a good day out. Uh, That due a rest. Yeah, I knew I'd have a good result. I've done the training. Uh, uh, sort of, I didn't think I'd do that many, but uh, not too bad now, but yeah, I was in a, in a bit of uh, pain here and there. More than 600 sheep in eight hours. Wow, what an effort. Details of that record coming up later in the program. And in just a moment, the unique raincoats to protect the cherries at one Tasmanian orchard. G'day, Tony, with you on this Monday, where we also look at the fruit fly outbreaks in the Riverland area where transport of any fruit has been banned. Yeah, the kids can't even take fruit from home to school, believe it or not. And it's been a busy weekend for cattle, horse and goat lovers in Tasmania. We'll take you to the Goat Fest held yesterday at Longford and also the gathering of the Mountain Cattlemen's Association at Westbury a little bit later in the program. Plus, of course, a check on the weather and your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Most welcome, 0438 922 936, that number. 0438922936. Well, the latest cherry season is winding down across the state. This year, for many growers, the season was a bit shorter than normal, thanks to the weather and the Lunar New Year. One cherry grower in the northwest barely felt the effects of the weather, thanks basically to hectares of raincoats they installed over the trees. Meg Powell spoke to Jordan Distill at the Sprayton and Fresh Cherry Orchard. We started in early mid to early December and it's already already over in mid-January so it's one of our quicker seasons um yeah mainly mainly dictated by uh the lunar Chinese New Year yeah right quicker because you wanted to get it all ready for the lunar New Year or yep that's exactly exactly right just trying to get um as much fruit off and and to uh our customers in in the mainland and overseas and also our local customers as well and how did the season go? What was your yield like this year? Uh, this year, just because we tried to get the fruit off so quick, um, we've actually probably lowered our yield a little bit. Um, but considering we still got off just over 100 tonne, which is, um, yeah, we're really happy with that. And the quality of that has been pretty high as well, which is good. Was that delayed a little bit? Yeah, they, it, w- it was delayed in a sense. Um but we really were picking quite early. A lot of um, a lot of our cherries were going probably a little bit redder than usual, um, just trying to get them off um, to supply the market. Um, but yeah, we've slowly caught back up and we've got some nice um, darker fruit out there, which is good. Now, something that's a bit different about this year is um, what's above us. Can you explain for our radio audience what's, what's above our heads at the moment? Uh, so we've got... Our new rain covers, which consists of around 10 hectares of uh, plastic um, rain covers, which is a, basically a tarp. It's made out of recycled milk bottles. Um, it's a European design. And, yeah, we've inst- uh, installed it ourselves. Um, yeah, we had about 
20 people uh, on and off um, while we did the exercise and yeah, it's been a big job and the team's worked really well together. Speaking of big jobs, just looking at it now, I can see that there's hundreds of individual bungee cords holding these things together. There's also um, pine poles down the middle. These are all things you had to install by hand yourselves. Yep, that's exactly right. So we've put in um, around 2,000 extra treated pine poles for extra support, um, kilometres of cable, of new cable, and over 100,000 bungee cords and black clips that actually hold the system all together. Oh, my God. And how many do you reckon you tied yourself? <laughs> ah, well, I was here for probably, well, yeah, 100% of the process on this particular block. Um, so, yeah, from, from day one to, um, to the final product, we were out here. <laughs> aye, aye, I'd aye. say it took um, maybe two, two months of hard work and learning. <laughs> and uh, some mistakes along the way, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. Um, the wind, as you can imagine, with that amount of tarp has been a great thing to work with. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had to actually um, put a little bit more support in areas where the, the wind load was a lot higher. Um, we're on a bit of a hill, so the, um, the wind's not consistent through the actual valley. So, yeah, some areas are worse than others. It's actually it's tremendously muggy in here at the moment. It's quite humid. Do these tarps, what, what difference do they make? So basically, we're just trying to get as much water off the cherries as we can from the rain. Um, any any sort of moisture like that is going to cause splitting. Uh, even the dew from the morning, um, and you know you can get your hail damage, uh, all that sort of thing. Frosts. So we're just trying to stop that completely. Um, and these tarps are obviously creating that bit of heat which um, keeps them nice and dry and allows them to grow happily. And this is, um, as, as we said before, this is a fairly new investment for the farm here. How much would you say in previous years would you have lost due to rain? Oh, some years can be terrible. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, you can lose, sometimes you could lose 50% if you get the rain at the wrong time. Sometimes you could lose more. Um, hail uh, can obviously just absolutely destroy it and yeah so we're hopefully going to get a consistent return out of this which will yeah definitely brighten the future. (laughs) Devastating it could be to lose that much of a crop. Oh absolutely because you you some years you're actually relying on this to turn out and and produce an income for the rest of the year um, keeping everyone obviously employed and everyone happy but if you've got a bad season or you get a bad weather um you know, you you can lose it all, you know, flick of the fingers. So, <laughs> yeah. You ship a lot of your produce produce to the mainland. How were prices this year? Yep, they were a record high. So we got some really good pricing back. Um, we unfortunately didn't get it there soon enough. Um, we were a little bit late and that was, yeah, somewhat due to picking, somewhat due to... Um, our packing and also freight issues as well along the way. So we couldn't quite get it there when it needed to be, meaning our stock might have landed early week instead of for the weekend sales. And that that sort of does affect things to a degree. Six months ago-ish, you took on this role here, Jordan. What What is it? Um, basically, uh, I've 
come on board as being a directing manager of, of Sprayton Fresh. Um, you know, working in with the family and also the family friends in the business as well. Um, so, yeah, I've taken on the challenges out here in the orchard so far, just managing that and, and really helping along the way with um, our great team. And, yeah, hopefully after this I'll go into other areas and help them and learn a lot along the way. <laughs> You're one of you're one of there's three families involved with Sprayton Fresh here, and you're one of them. Is this something you've grown up with? Yep. So as a, at a young age, I started working here when I was about 13 years old, and just basically doing my holiday work. And now here I am again after 10 years after high school doing a, another trade, and I'm back here working in the orchard, <laughs> which is great. And you've taken on the new challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A new challenge in front of me, which is awesome. Yeah, awesome. Jordan Distill, new young director of Sprayed and Fresh, describing to Meg Powell about those painstaking months of work to install rain covers on the cherry orchard with hundreds of ties. A lot of work, but it seems to have been worth it to protect those cherries. Of course, interesting that the plastic was made from recycled milk bottles. There you go, protecting the cherries with old milk bottles. We don't like fruit fly here in this state, but in South Australia, a number of outbreaks of fruit fly are causing massive headaches, especially for people in semi-urban areas with the backyard fruit trees. The restrictions in the Riverland area will see more children than ever return to school this week without homegrown fruit in their lunchbox. With 25 fruit fly outbreaks across the region, families are trying to find affordable and healthy alternatives. Loxton mum Sonia Feisner's, whose permaculture property is in the latest outbreak area, says it is frustrating that the pest is still causing problems. We have so much fruit at the moment because it's summertime, so we have so much starting to ripen up and it's, and it's delicious. But However, we can't take it off the property now, so we will be eating it straight off the tree and we'll be processing it, like making fruit wraps or putting it in the dehydrator and giving certainly the bird peck fruit to the chickens. So, Would you normally be packing some of that fruit for your children to take to school? Oh, absolutely. My kids, you know, they're growing boys and so they need their lunchbox absolutely packed, absolutely jam-packed. And so I have these huge bags of fruit that I usually send in but we won't be doing that this year, so. How much extra work might that make for you as a mother and a, and a single mother, organising healthy snacks for your kids, you know, not just being able to pop a nectarine in from your tree? Uh, it does make things a bit harder. So economically, uh, fruit and veg, you know, with a fruit fly as well as the, the rising prices of fruit and veg, it's costing a fortune at the moment to be uh, buying all this stuff when it's sitting there at home. Time-wise, uh, I now have to create things like, you know, doing the fruit straps in the dehydrator or cutting them up and like dehydrating them as a little, you know, so if it's a peach, it'd be a little half circle. It's really time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or putting it through the preserver, so yeah. And that's not even to mention the time to take that ripe fruit off the trees that you have to do yeah. now. If you have a lot of fruit trees, that sounds like we do. a lot of work. We do. Oh, I enjoy it though. It's really beautiful to go outside and just picking it straight off the tree and just eating it when it's still warm. But yeah, there's so much work here to be done and you know, it just adds to it. So.
Is that something you're able to get your kids to help you with, to collect the fruit off the trees? Sometimes, sometimes. Um, I think more goes in their mouths than actually, that's actually bought inside, but... It's probably good at this, <laughs> at the right. moment. I mean, that's the whole point why we did fruit trees here anyway, is so they could just walk outside and just pick it straight off the tree. So, and I, I think in that sense, I'm, you know, I'm quite blessed that I can, that I've got that opportunity. But I can imagine someone who hasn't got access to homegrown fruit and veggies, it would be difficult. It would be hard. Yeah. Have you heard from any other parents of children in outbreak areas about how they're going with, with fruit fly and, and managing, you know, fruit restrictions and packing school lunches? Uh, I haven't really spoken about it with anyone, but they're certainly a, they're annoyed that it's happening, that it's still happening. This has been a few years now. I'm in the area that originally had the first fruit fly outbreak and that was just it was such a shock then but I think people who have this is like what second time around getting used to it but for someone who hasn't been in a fruit fly zone yet it's it's infuriating. Loxton mum Sonia Fitzner. Primary Industries of South Australia's Nick Seckham says with all of the recent outbreaks found in backyard fruit trees, residents need to make sure ripe fruit isn't left on the ground or the tree to rot. So it's really important that people understand that with homegrown fruit, that is really high risk for fruit fly because it's obviously not treated. If fruit fly around, they love homegrown fruit. So we ask people not to move it from their property at all. You can enjoy it at home. Obviously, if you'd like to enjoy that away from home, you can process it. You can cook it. You can freeze it. But please don't move homegrown fruit away from your property because that's how fruit fly spreads and we've seen that happen a couple of times. So enjoy your homegrown fruit at home but please don't take it to work, don't take it to school in a school lunchbox, don't take it to sport. If you want to take those sorts of things to school or work or, or, or other places, please buy retail fruit, keep that receipt, we know that's fruit fly safe. Mr Seckham says despite the new outbreaks, increasing reports of potential fruit fly sightings show the community is engaged in the fight to eradicate the pest. Of the most recent fruit fly outbreaks, all of them have been reported by people who have checked their backyard fruit, which is great. And that's what we want people to do. We want people to check their backyard fruit. It's Persa Fruit Fly Response Manager Nick Seacom ending that story from Eliza Burlage on the fruit fly outbreaks in the Riverland area of South Australia, which are causing major problems for the local community. Coming up, a call for more female beekeepers and more women on agricultural boards. Whatever you're up to in the evening, taming the garden... Being a family taxi, hitting the shops or making the dog's dreams come true with a tennis ball. Whatever your evening holds, I'd love to spend it with you. I'm Helen Shield. This year I'm on evenings, so I'll be with you on the radio, online, on the ABC Listen app or Channel 25 on your TV, 7 till 10pm Monday to Thursday on ABC Radio Hobart. Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Yeah, don't forget our text line number 0438922936. Women play a vital role across all sectors of agriculture. But when it comes to their representation on the boards of peak industry groups, they're still in the minority. That's something that Professor of Agriculture at Charles Sturt University, Jim Prattley AM, wants to see changed. Having watched the numbers of women increase rapidly over recent decades in Australian university ag programs, Mr Prattley told Alice Marshall that peak bodies have to pick up their game to represent these women at a corporate level and reap the rewards that follow. Yeah, well, we can go back to, uh, you know, pre-1970s when women weren't allowed in ag colleges or in 
in ag high schools. And uh, we've moved on a long way f- uh, from there to about 2003 when when women became the majority of students in our agriculture programs across the university sector in Australia in agriculture. And um, that majority has persisted uh, without a failure since that time. And uh, it's probably increased rather than decreased. And so that's 20 years of more females coming into agriculture at the professional level than, um, uh, you know, we'd, we'd seen uh, in a whole lifetime before. So it's it's a really good news story. Uh, if you have a look at some of the individual courses, then we know that uh, in agriculture there's a majority, but in the animal science, animal production courses, there is a big majority of females, and uh, so the cattle industry would be depending on a lot of those graduates. And then in veterinary science, where um, they'd be depending on uh, their animals being uh, looked after and cured and so on, uh, it's probably 80% plus women. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've got to get over this uh, issue of uh, patronising women. We've got to accept that they're actually the strength of our sector and uh, they're doing a mad- magic job. And if we look at uh, the National Farmers Federation, for example, we've got our first female president uh, and she has done an outstanding job of taking agriculture to places that we couldn't have dreamed of getting in with a male president. And uh, we're a much more professional sector now than we've ever been. And what would you say to those industry bodies across Australia's ag sector that don't achieve gender diversity and that have maybe a majority men to a minority women, if they only have one or two women on their board of six or seven men, what would you say to them? That really is uh, not acceptable in this uh, day and age. Um, We need to have very good representation of, um, you know, men, women, uh, older, younger uh, Indigenous uh, and perhaps even uh, immigrants. Um, yeah, there. Are, we've got to get over this thing that we think we know it all. Uh, there's various ways of doing things, and the better input we have from a different range of people, the better decisions we'll make going forward. And uh, that's where we've come in the last uh, decade or two. And um, I'd like to see that even stronger as we go forward. Do you think that there's a gap that you can see in the women that are coming through and they're doing these really hands-on ag courses like animal science or veterinary science, Mm. but they're not making that leap or they're choosing not to make that leap into the corporate sector, into the corporate world? Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I think there's there's perhaps more than uh, we think. Uh, I can think of, I know that, in the research and development corporations, for example, there is an expectation uh, of relative balance in gender. Um, so that's 40% of each, uh, at least. Um, I see it also in uh, some of the other uh, bodies, but of course there are quite a few that haven't moved in that direction. And uh, I just think that they're going to be forced 
to address that sooner rather than later because um, there's a lot of scrutiny these days on boards and committees and so on. And uh, so there should be. And and I think we're, we've moved to a point where uh, there's no going back and we just have to go forward and, and we need to go forward because that's both the most appropriate thing to do uh, in, in order for us to get the best advice that we can. That's Professor Jim Bratley from Charles State University School of Agriculture speaking there to Alice Marshall, calling for more representation of women on the boards of peak industry groups in agriculture. Well, earlier this month, more than 1,300 women helped set a world record for most photos of women beekeeping uploaded on social media in 24 hours, part of the efforts to promote diversity in the industry. Uh, the reality is beekeeping is still very much a male-dominated profession. The New South Wales Apiarist Association is now part of a push to boost the number of female keepers in the industry, as Kim Honan reports. Steve Fuller, the president of the state's peak body for the industry, runs a honey and pollination business on the north coast, which last year took on a trainee female beekeeper, and he says he'd happily employ more. He estimates that women represent just 5% of those working in the field and packing shed, but in the research area, it's up around 70%. But he says there are plenty of opportunities for females in numerous roles across the industry. There's everything from researchers to beekeepers to look even down to working in factories like packing honey and all this sort of stuff. There's a magnitude of jobs available for everyone. How has it changed over the years since you've been in the industry in, you know, female participation? It was really, really rare before to have females involved in the bee industry. You'll get one every now and then. But now we're actually seeing a lot more females come actual beekeepers, not just honey packers and all this sort of stuff. So it's great. They are a lot more gentler on bees. The males seem to be a bit more rougher. So females, it's it's great to see that they're coming forward in an industry that was used to be male-dominated. Mm. So would you say that the bee survival rate is higher with females in the job? They take a little bit more care, yes. They're actually very good truck drivers too, so they're good on the truck. So, no, look, they, they are. Look, females are really um, starting to outshine the males, which is good. Steve Fuller, president of the New South Wales APRIS Association, which teamed up with the Agri-Industry Training Board to highlight the beekeeping and production horticulture industries to women aged 16 to 65. Among the participants at the showcase day at Mountain Blue Farms at Tabulum was 21-year-old Fruini Bohm. I'm really interested in bees and obviously bees and bee health is interconnected with just about any other horticulture and agriculture sector and so I'm looking to find ways that I can engage with my industry in a really um, innovative and sustainable way Um, and I'm looking to travel overseas and work with beekeepers next year so I'm just trying to gain as much experience as I have as I can and that also um, I don't know as young people it's hard to like go into agriculture if you haven't been born into it so events like today are really important in making those connections. So are you keen on becoming a beekeeper or do you have some hives already? Yeah I've got some hives already I've been keeping hives in the northern rivers for 13 years yeah and so since I finished school um, yeah I didn't think I'd pursue a career in agriculture but here I am and I'm very proud to be doing so. So as a a beekeeper, are you keeping hives for honey production or for pollination or a bit of both? Yeah, mainly it's just uh, honey production on like hobbyist, purely hobbyist. But yeah, I obviously split my time with DPI where I work on a genetic improvement program for honeybees. So yeah, I'm trying to, and I also do a bit of servicing and like 
that kind of helped with beekeepers. So yeah, I'm still trying to find my feet and figure out what exactly I want to do. Yeah, I'm Liz Essery, I'm from Lismore. I'm part of the Northern Rivers Amateur Beekeepers Association and so I wanted to come and see what opportunities there are for other women because I'm trying to push more women um, to be uh, members of the Beekeepers Association and where they can come and learn from older beekeepers and, um, and perhaps bring in more new ideas. And from a woman's point of view, not always. Quite a lot of the, uh, the uh, traditional beekeepers are older men and um, I think we just need to open it up more to, to women and younger women. Yeah. Are you keeping hives and bees uh, just as fun as a hobby or uh, do you want to become a commercial keeper? I'm more of a hobbyist and I originally got them for pollination. I had I have a lot of fruit trees and they weren't doing a lot so I thought well I'll get bees and that's made a huge difference to my fruit production and also of course the honey is a bonus. Yeah, got lots of developed lots of friends since I had lots of honey. <laughs> I bet. Sarah Scandrett and I'm from Teven so it's near Ballina. Uh, we already run some bees. We've just about hit 100 hives and we just want to expand our business. So we want to look into going into pollination, which we haven't really had the education on. So, yeah, picked up some really good hints today about that. Yeah, and how long have you been running hives for? Uh, we've uh, started uh, four years ago. So we sell mainly at markets and at our front gate. And then I also do a lot of beeswax products that go with the market stall. Why so keen on pollination? Is it uh, just an, an extra income? You want to get away from honey or just to do, to do both? Um, it's just probably didn't support, support the environment a bit as well. There's um, definitely that opportunity in this area for that. And what did you learn today? Um, I think it was more networking with these very educated people in the industry and getting those um, connections. And seeing how the bees pollinate the crops here yeah. in a blueberry orchard as well? Yeah, for sure, learning all the different types of bees, the different types of areas of pollination. And is this where you'd like to, to bring your hives onto to blueberry farms or other, you know, I guess, berries? I mean, yeah. uh, We'll probably look more into the macadamias. We think that's the way the industry will be going, especially with the varroa mite and everything in Australia at the moment. Yeah, that's definitely where our opportunity will be, I think. And has that affected you at the moment? No, we're all right at the moment. Well, um, the floods affected us, but the varroa mite's not in our area yet. Yeah. How did the floods affect oh, we you? We just lost some hives in the floods, but we've, we've been able to rebuild. If that's the worst that we yeah. that happened to us, we can't complain at all. It's Sarah Scandrett from Two Busy Bees at Teven on the New South Wales North Coast ending that report from Kim Honan looking for more female beekeepers. Still to come on the country are a big weekend for goats, horses and cattle in the state as well as a world shearing record. Plus a check on the weather, of course. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Tasmania police say they suspect fatigue may have been the cause of a single vehicle crash in the state's north, which injured five people and killed four horses. Police say a Ford Ranger utility towing a horse float left the Batman Highway at Sidmouth at about quarter to two this morning and crashed into a tree stump. Police say the occupants had been in Hobart for a late-night harness racing meet and were only minutes away from their Rowella destination. A Victorian coroner has slammed the state's bail laws following the death of an Aboriginal woman in custody. Veronica Nelson was found dead in her cell at Melbourne's Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison in 2020, despite making repeated calls for help in the hours leading up to her death. The federal government's officially launched its new cultural policy aimed at boosting the arts, entertainment and culture sector. The new 
leadership plan will see close to $300 million invested across the sector over five years, including for the establishment of a new funding body called Arts, called Creative Australia. And Australian insurers operating in New Zealand have been hit with thousands of claims after severe storms in and around Auckland. At least four people are known to have died uh, since Auckland was hit by massive floods on Friday. More rainfalls being forecast for today and tomorrow. More news at one. Time now to check that weather with Luke Johnston from the Bureau. Good day, Luke. Good afternoon, Tony. Geez, they're getting smashed in Auckland, aren't they? Yeah, thank, thankfully it's not uh, not over here. It sounds pretty horrible with all the rain that they're getting being fed directly in from the tropics. Yeah, pretty definitely. Pretty nasty stuff. Um, we're sort of like, is it more cloudy or more sunny? Oh, What's, the, what is it? Well, uh, that's the age-old question, isn't it? <laughs> it depends where you are in Tasmania, whether it's a partly cloudy or mostly sunny afternoon. But uh, good news is clouds gradually decreasing more so this afternoon as the, the sun sort of heats us up and helps some of the, the strata cumulus bubble up into little pockets of cumulus and sort of dissipate through the afternoon. A few light showers this morning into the northwest, but it uh, doesn't look like it recorded much. Most of the rainfall up to 9am uh, happened yesterday, about the northeastern third of the state, where we saw falls of between oh, 3 to 8 millimetres, and Mount St John had 16 millimetres uh, out of yesterday's stuff. For the remainder of today, uh, essentially fine weather. It's warm, relatively light winds with a, a high-pressure system uh, dominant over Tasmania, or a ridge of high-pressure, I should say. Going to continue into tomorrow with very similar conditions. Temperatures in the uh, mid-20s, reaching the high 20s inland, about the upper Duant Valley. And then uh, our next cold front is due through on Wednesday morning, giving some showers statewide uh, during the morning and afternoon periods. So looking at around... 5 to 10 millimetres for the west and the northeast, and 1 to 3 millimetres elsewhere. So not huge falls, but still something. Another cold front, a bit stronger one on Thursday, later in the day, and then a very interesting low-pressure system passing near or just to the south of Tasmania on Friday. Going to give us showers in most areas, but uh, probably of more note will be how cold it will feel. It's likely we'll start to see some snow flurries to around 11 or 1,200 metres uh, during the morning period. Not expected to last, but hey, it's still summer snow. Everyone loves a bit of January snow, don't they, Tony? Oh, we do. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fairly short-lived, though. The low-pressure system bringing that cold air over the state will be pushed away during Saturday, and it looks like we return to milder, more settled weather from Sunday onwards. Mm. Okay. I think I'm being a little bit, you know, frivolous there. We don't really like snow in summer. God, you've got to have summer, haven't you? Yeah. No, we had that. That was, that was Saturday. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. What sort of warnings have we got? Well, no warnings for today or tomorrow, with uh, thanks to those mild, settled conditions. But we'll likely see a return to strong wind warnings and, and the like with our, our fronts uh, from Wednesday onwards. And uh, it looks like it could be quite windy on Saturday at this stage. So just keep that in mind and we'll, we'll see how things go as we get closer to this low moving near us at the end of the week. I'm just picturing the last of the cherry harvest, somebody trying to pick up the top of the tree and it's snowing on them. <laughs> no, it won't does happen. That, that, won't does happen. that freeze them, though? No, it won't. won't not unless they're up, uh, up way above 1,000 metres. Yeah, uh, yeah, somewhere yeah, in the central know. highlands somewhere. somewhere. Somebody's got a fruit tree up there that they're going to pick some stuff up out of there on the go. weekend. Like, well, snow. yeah. yeah. Um, coastal waters and swell. <laughs> What's well, happening there? Co- 
Coastal waters today, fairly light stuff, northwest to southwesterly, 10 to 15 knots in the west, tending east to southeasterly about the northeast, and variable winds in the southeast today. Tomorrow, northwest to southwesterly, 10 to 20 knots in the west, lighter and more variable about the east, and then tending north to northeasterly, 10 to 20 knots down the east coast during the afternoon. The swell today and tomorrow is pretty consistent. We've got a west to southwesterly, three to three and a half metre swell coming onto Tasmania. Through Bass Strait, there's a combination of a westerly and a northeasterly, but both below one metre, the east coast southerly below one metre and a northeasterly to around one metre. Significant wave height off Cape Sorrel on the west coast, 4.2 metres at the moment and off uh, Mariah Island on the east coast, it's just over one metre significant wave height. Terrific. Thank you, Luke. No worries. Thanks, Tony. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Talk to you later. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all the latest information for you on that weather. I was going to say weird weather. It will be by the end of the week if uh, if we do have that snow that is predicted. Well, it wasn't weird at the shearing record at the weekend. It was just simply sensational. And uh, that details of that story coming up in just a moment. Lucy Brader, back on your radio in 2023. I've got a bustling drive show for you today. To keep you updated when you're on the move. Taking a look at your traffic, though, it's looking pretty A-OK right across the network. Informing you with stories from the natural world. What is going on with this cannibalism amongst spiders? To pop culture. And to see a prince do such a tell-all interview. Lucy Braden back with The Drive Vibe weekdays from 4pm on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It was a really busy weekend for a lot of agricultural industries. I will take you to the Tasmanian Mountain Cattlemen's Association get-together shortly. We'll also take you to Goatfest. Lots of people, lots of goats and... Uh, We'll hear those stories in just a moment, but there was one amazing story at the weekend, a shearer from New South Wales recovering today after beating a world record in shearing at the weekend in Tasmania. 37-year-old Aidan Kopp managed to shear 605 lambs in eight hours on the property Lovely Banks in Tasmanian southern highlands, beating the previous world record of 527 lambs. Reporter Will Murray was on hand to watch the action and spoke to Aidan's trainer. Yeah, I'm Lucy Byers and it's Fitzone 24-7. Lucy, can you tell me, what's your involvement today? What are you, uh, how are you helping Aidan achieve this world record? Um, yes, I helped him along um, being personal trainer and also then managing, so managing to the event and managing on the day. And can you tell me, uh, we're a few hours in, how's he tracking? Yeah, he's right on. He's, um, he is um, exceeding probably expectations, um, but he, his lead-up was um, epic. He, yeah, he had a very... Yeah, motivated and very um, driven mindset, so he, he's not faltering. He's amazing. And can you tell me a little bit about that lead-up? These people are incredibly fit that take on these uh, these world record attempts. Absolutely. Um, so it would be nothing for Aidan to um, do a full day in the shed, a shearing, um, you know, sitting up around his 400 tallies, and he would then just go out and probably put a weighted vest on and do a 20, 25k run. So, um, or swimming or, you know, bike riding, he was, um, or just going for the gym. He's phenomenal, but probably more so, I think his mental strength is just above and beyond. Like, to be able to do any of that, you've just got to have major mental strength. So they train, effectively, they train like professional athletes. Oh, an elite athlete. Um, To to take on a world record like this, um, shearers in their own right um, are athletes, but then taking it on to that world, uh, you know, world record status is is an elite athlete. 
And can you tell us, what's the breakdown like? We've got four runs that he has to go through. Yep. What kind of pace is he having to keep to get near that world record? So, yeah, he's he's sitting on between that 45, you know, sort of second rate. Um, he's, he's just... Yeah, and, he, and he's not faltering. He's, he's amazing. Um, you know, and he's got to, and in knowing in that, he's got to change his own gear. He's got to, he's got to be on all that himself. So he's, he's just ticking over. He's really holding it well. And you, you mentioned it's about that 45 second per sheep, uh, Sean. Sean. Yep. What's it normally? You know, if that's 45 seconds for world record pace, what are you normally sitting on? You know, it can vary. It, it, it really does depend on the animal, but you could be sitting, you know, a, your shearer would be, be sitting at a minute, a little bit, a little bit over a minute um, per sheep. And, you know, but the thing is, we, what we, we look at is they can have one run where they'll really, they'll really push out and they'll exceed expectations. Um, and then they'll probably just back off. But when you're doing a world record, you've got to try and maintain it for the whole day. So um, it's more endurance and holding that high speed at, at endurance for the day, which is where it's at. And we're talking an eight-hour day. So what kind of toll is that taking on uh, Aiden's body? Oh, yeah. So it can take a real toll. Um, you know, you've got to be looking at that muscle fatigue, that lactic acid build-up. Um, making sure that we're getting that hydration in there and keeping everything really, really hydrated um, because it can. It can have a real massive toll on that body. But um, that's where that lead-up is so important, um, getting it right. And, he, and he's, he's got it right. And how do you do that when he's shearing a sheep every 45 seconds? How are you keeping him hydrated and the lactic acid out of his body? What's the yeah, method? Yeah, so look, he's going to obviously build up lactic acid through that run. There's, that's just a given. But, but obviously training prior to this to, to get that body to be able to handle it and, and go through and push out a little bit more is, is the key. Um, so he's been doing that really, really well. Um, it's just creating that, that little bit more endurance, which he's been doing really well. And then it's obviously, it's, it's I suppose, you know, learning to, to understand what your body needs. Everybody's body is a little bit different. So he's been really working on that through the whole process of what he can take and what his body can't take. And it's not as warm as what we'd hoped today. No. That makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So we were thinking it was probably going to be a little bit warmer. Um, it's still it's still warm, but you know, um, Aiden was definitely hoping for a really cracker of a day. Um, it just makes um, shearing that animal that little bit easier. Um, I mean, he's doing it. He's doing an amazing job, but it just helps also with with that wool coming off. I'm Darren Ford, and my role was to on the times to keep him motivated and give them the time, split time, so what I've done is set them at 48 seconds and I yell that out every time it comes to 48 seconds, so he's got to try and keep in front of it so that's how he knows how he's going and then at the end we assess how many he's done, which would come to 150 or 153, you know and we push him the last little bit to try and catch the catch, get the hand on the door to get the catch so, um, that's my role, is just to keep him motivated and know where he is what, how many is shearing and stuff. So. And I've just heard that you are yourself a former uh, shearing world record holder. Yes, I've done, I held um, three records over my times and I still got um, part of a record with a team record, 16 record back in New Zealand. So, um, yeah, I've been through all that before and it's not easy. It's unbelievably hard. Um, your body's, you're working so much harder than what you normally do on a normal day. Um, so yeah, it, it is bloody hard. But in saying that, he's trained and prepared for it. So he knows, and he's done one before. So he knows what he's going through. So 
Can you give us an indication of the toll it takes on your body to shear a sheep every 45, 48 seconds for an eight-hour day? Well, I'll just go back to one of mine years ago. I lost about six kilos on the day from when I started the day to the end of the day. So um, I started at 81 kilos. I ended up on 75 point something. So that's how much it drains you. Um, and you're because you're shearing so many and your body's not used to shearing that many as well so it's, it's, it's so hard but hopefully he's feeling it now at lunchtime but um you know that good lunch break and come that last 10 minutes he'll lift again i reckon before the start of the next run and how did the shearer aiden cop feel after breaking the record oh it was a good day out um that due arrest uh yeah I knew I'd have a good result. I've done the training, but uh, sort of, I didn't think I'd do that many. But uh, not too bad now. But yeah, I was in a, in a bit of uh, pain here and there. But just tried to stay stay positive, even though I was in a bit of pain here and there. But uh, always believed in myself. The young people need to see down here that uh, any, anything's possible in the shearing industry. And um, yeah, some good sheep down here. So yeah, have a go. Yeah, new world record holder Aiden Cop from New South Wales speaking after shearing 605 lambs in eight hours in Tasmania at the weekend at the Lovely Banks property in Tasmania's Southern Highlands. And we also heard from previous record holder Darren Ford and Aidan's trainer Lucy Byers, a report from Will Murray. And uh, that story is on our ABC Rural Facebook page as well with some photos too if you want to have a look. Uh, Doug says, great job, Aidan. Um, and also Tony says, just simply hard work. Gary says, I could probably do one, as in one sheep. Amazing effort. Yeah, take me out eight hours to do one also. Uh, Tammy simply says, awesome. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, another event that happened over the weekend. It's been a while since the Tasmanian Mountain Cattlemen's Association have had their annual get-together of whip-cracking, barrel racing and muster mountain relays due to the pandemic, of course. But the past weekend saw their 34th annual get-together at a Westbury site, continuing the traditions of the Mountain Cattlemen. Madeline Rojan went to the event and met Judy Kilby, TMCA's founding and life member. She reflected on the history of the association and says the group existed because back in the 80s, they were told by one man that if they didn't form an association, they would lose everything. My name's Judy Kilby and I'm a life member and founding member of the Tasmania Mountain Cattlemen's Association. A life member, that's a pretty cool title. Uh, yes, it's an honour to be a life member. Um, but I guess it represents... 34 years, 35 years, because we've missed one year when we had to get together of input. So I'm very fortunate that I'm still here and still doing it. Can you tell me a bit about the history of of the event? Because um, you told me a little bit before that there's quite a strong tradition behind it. Yes, it's really all about tradition. The Tasmanian Mountain Cattlemen's Association was formed in 1986 and it was designed on the Victorian Mountain Cattlemen's Association And that, of course, was formed because of the threats to grazing in the high country in Victoria. And we had a young man, Simon Cubitt. He belonged to, he was a member of the Lee family. And he said, you guys, you haven't got a leg to stand on unless you form an association so that if anything comes up, you've got a voice. Mm -hmm. 
So sure enough, we were formed in 86, and then in 87 we found out that country, part of which I own, Lee's Paddocks in the Upper Mersey Valley, was listed for World Heritage with the Lemontine and Southern Forests without any consultation. So if it wasn't for the fact Simon Cubitt was in the know, we never would have known that was the case and it would have just been put on without us knowing. We'd just stop while that vehicle goes by. So anyhow, 1988 was absolutely huge. It was we To promote the Mountain Cattlemen's Association, we ran our first get-together, uh, bicentennial year, and 100 years since Lees had been taking stock to Lees Paddocks in the Upper Mersey, and we had a nationwide political campaign to defend our rights. We had Senator George Richardson, the Minister of the Day, came down from Canberra, flew in in a helicopter with Bob Brown to Lees Paddocks, and um, after a very, very long campaign, taking media into Lees Paddocks, we had rides across the Central Plateau, and we had a hundred horses rode through the streets of Hobart to the casino to the Labor Party conference. Lees Paddocks was excluded from the listing. So that was a huge um, victory for us. So ever since then, the name of the Cattlemen's Association has been kept alive by having a get-together every year. So here we are at Harveydale, our 34th get-together. What was the relationship with environmental activists like Bob Brown during that challenging time? Well, when we took Bob Brown and Senator George Richardson into Lee's paddocks, I actually flew in with them. The horses had gone in. I flew in with them in the helicopter and he said, Judy... You should be proud that we want to put your land into World Heritage. I said, Bob, if I want to graze cattle, I don't want to be asking somebody in Canberra whether I may or whether I may not. And we pride ourselves on our management of the land up there, and I think any conservationist would agree with you that the maintenance up there where we traditionally burn back with the snow, it's one of those few areas in the high country that we feel is well and truly... um, protected from wildfire and of course this has happened with so many of the traditional grazing blocks they're left, they're not maintained they're not burnt off and they're lost to wildfire Mm. so that's part of um, what we promote And there are some historically challenging times, are there any challenges that the association faces today and currently? Probably the biggest challenge to well, particularly the get-together, is to attract people interested in um, continuing on, coming on to the committee. Um, We're probably sad that uh, for the last two or three years we haven't been to the high country for our get-together, which was always absolutely amazing, going up to some iconic property in the high country um, where you wouldn't normally be able to go but it became very difficult, A, to access properties and, B, to prepare them, to prepare the property for an event of this magnitude was a huge undertaking. Most of our committee now are young people with families and they just haven't got that sort of time to allocate it. So we've come, we've been attracted to Harveydale because a lot of the infrastructure is here and if you're here for the presentations... It will bring tears to your eyes to see those horses cantering around, carrying the flags to the music of Man from Snowy River 
and uh, those magnificent stock horses. Uh, I think it says a lot for this venue. Many young people still participating. Do you think that it's something that's being passed on through the generations and that this will be continuing for a long time? Well, we hope so. At our first get-together, there wouldn't be a child who could crack a whip. Now that the, the kids, we all play nursery rhymes with a whip in each hand. Um, the handy stock horse, it's something now it's embraced by pony clubs. Oh, recently at our Tasmanian Pony Club and Riding Club camp at Westbury, we set up handy stock horse stuff where the little kids could crack a whip. I showed them how to put a pack on their pony to go to the mountains, walk over bridges, and they just absolutely love it. And they'll be getting very, very good at doing it. So that certainly will continue on. It's becoming more and more popular. Yeah, that's Judy Kilby, founding member and life member of the Tasmanian Mountain Cattlemen's Association. At their annual get-together on the weekend with our reporter, Madeline Rojan. Whatever you're up to in the evening, taming the garden, being a family taxi, hitting the shops or making the dog's dreams come true with the tennis ball, whatever your evening holds, I'd love to spend it with you. I'm Helen Shield. This year I'm on evenings, so I'll be with you on the radio, online, on the ABC Listen app or Channel 25 on your TV, 7 till 10pm Monday to Thursday on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, as we say, it's been a very busy weekend. Goat lovers and cattlemen enthusiasts alike gathering to celebrate their separate rural passions. Also on yesterday was the Goat Fest. And Madeline Rajan, our reporter, headed to this year's Goat Fest, held at the Longford Showgrounds, to meet a bunch of goat farmers and simply goat lovers. <laughs> what do you what do you love about <laughs> what do you love about goats? They're funny and they're fun to play with. Have you got one of your own? Um, yeah, Itty Bitty. Is Itty Bitty here today? No. Who's this that you've got with you now? Luna. <laughs> and just numbers grew. We fell in love with the breed, we fell in love with the animal and realised there was a market for it. So it just grew from there, really. I've come to Goatfest to support Goatfest. Why did you choose Angora goats? I just fell in love with them. I just thought they were a beautiful animal. I liked Angora goats well before I even had property. I've got vinyl goat-themed products here that I've made with my Cricut machine um, and there's not much about on the market, so I thought that I'd enter it. Um, I've also got my own miniature goat stud named Jahanda. Um, We've just started out. We've been a year in the business, so I thought... Last year I attended as a onlooker, mm-hmm. um, and this year I decided to have a stall. Is it your first time at Goat Fest today? Yes, it is. First time. What's brought you here? Uh, mum. <laughs> uh, yeah, mum wanted to come and see it, so we all came along as a big family. So that was nice. What do you think about goats then? Uh, I think they're pretty cute to look at, but uh, not too cute to look after. <laughs> The grandchildren really love them. Yeah. They, they think they're so cute. And the miniature ones are lovely. A son bought, built little seesaw for them and, and a couple other things, top cup, you know, made tyre rings, and they dance up and down there. Very amusing. Yeah. We try and come every year. Ah. 
yeah. what draws you here? The goats, of course. <laughs> just just an interest. Um, we've got two pets at home. Just here, chasing commercial breed of goats for ourselves on our property. I'm Anna Shepherd, and I am our publicity person. And tell me, how is it going here at Goat Fest today? It's going really well. We've had such a fantastic turnout. Even though we had a rainy start, it's cleared up now and there's just lots of people. Were you um, impressed by how many people showed up this morning when it was pretty rainy and wet? Yeah, I was. You know, goat people are very committed, so I shouldn't have been surprised. Um, any any highlights from the day so far? Um, I think for me just the variety of goats that we've got here, uh, the amount of people who are here appreciating them and also I have to say the really impressive entries in the art and craft competition. And how long has Goat Fest been running for? We've been running since 2009. Uh, we started up at Campbelltown, we moved to the Launceston Showgrounds and we've been there for a long time um, and with the sale of the showgrounds at Launceston we've moved to Longford and this is our third year here. How did it all begin? What was the mindset behind it? Um, just promoting goats, getting information out there, educating people. So the four sort of breed groups got together and decided to work together and make this happen and we've just gone from strength to strength. And So is there much information out there for goat owners and goat farmers or was Goatfest a big um, part of bringing all that together? It can, it can be hard to find. Um, you've sort of got to know some, someone who knows someone or know exactly where to look. So, yeah, it was definitely a big... Educating the public was a huge motivating factor behind getting Goat Fest up and running. Yeah. And it's quite a niche industry. Um, it must be nice for a lot of people to find like-minded others. Definitely. There's definitely a big part of the day for a lot of the exhibitors and the people here is socialisation talking to other crazy goat people who understand the challenges that we face and have had similar experiences and who can learn from each other and it's really lovely sense of community not that it's a competition but a goat's better than sheep by far superior to sheep absolutely i am not a sheep person i am goat person through and through we have had sheep and we will not be having sheep again I wasn't expecting such a strong reaction. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I'm going now. Um, They were just some of the goat enthusiasts at this year's Goat Fest. Goats are a lot better than sheep. Uh, Talking to Madeline Rojan at Longford. There you go. I had a goat and a sheep once and they were both pretty good. Um, I maybe favoured the goat. I don't know. Anyway, you can have a look at our ABC Rural Facebook page. Uh, That story on the shearing record sent in the Southern Midlands, of course. And uh, that story is also on ABC Rural Online as well. Plenty of great stories there for you to have a look at and uh, comment on it as well. That is our country hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.